as was mentioned already today, how thankful we each can be that health has been granted to us and the opportunity hours to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. God has truly been so good to us in so many ways. And today, at least for the few moments that we have as part of this part of our worship at least, to give some thought to another way in which He has been so marvelously grand to us as it relates to children. It was mentioned at the outset, right before the services began, in announcements about how that the weather didn't permit us to, to have the activity yesterday that, that we otherwise would have. But nonetheless, as we give appreciation to obligations that's ours as Christians, let's start our lesson like this. On this slide, isn't it amazing how often the Word of God speaks either to or about children? It's a rather remarkable thing to note the number of times the word child, or at least some word that relates to it, occurs in the Bible. You can see the number on the slide before you, 2,038 times. And if you divide that number by the actual number of chapters, that turns out that there's almost, on average, two occurrences of the word per chapter. Doesn't that alone indicate, highlight if you please, the nature of God's interest in and how much He has had to say about children? Without doubt, many of those passages, of course, speak to the obligations that children have. And young people, God does expect some things of you. There are things that He expects you to do, such as obeying your parents, Ephesians 6.1. But there are so many other verses that aren't directed to children, of course, they're directed, of course, to parents, to grandparents, to others. And it is that particular consideration that will be our primary focus this morning, the obligation to children. Specifically, there at the bottom, we're going to look at a number of passages. So I hope that as you look at these with me, that we'll be able to at least learn some dramatic truths that can help us as parents and as others who can influence young people. As I start this lesson, let me be quick to say that quite often, I suppose, we are of a habit of saying the children are the church of tomorrow. And there's certainly a sense in which there, there's an element of truth in that. Namely, there's going to come a time that all of us as older ones are either going to pass on or will be too infirm to carry out the services of the church. And so that generation following us will have to pick up the mantle and they'll have to be the ones to carry forth the efforts of the Lord's kingdom. But there's another very real sense in which young people are vital parts of the church of the day today. They bring energy and youthfulness. They bring a fervor and a zeal. And quite often, as you and I give thought to obligations we have to them, that's going to be the thrust of our discussion this morning. I chose to begin this lesson with that slide you can now see. And I think it's rather ironic that we as a society often praise highly the value of children. In fact, almost every politician, when the time comes to run for election, if you can play on the heartstrings of people that you're doing something to benefit children, you will often gain many people who will turn their votes your direction because everybody appreciates and loves children or so you would think. It's in that irony that you notice we currently have legalized abortion. We claim to love children, but we're happy to kill them. Isn't it odd? But isn't it interesting, though, on that slide, without a doubt, 
the Word of God praises very highly the value of children both before they're born and after they're born. And it makes no distinction between those two. In fact, could I direct your attention to Exodus 21, verses 22 and following, where there, even in the ancient days of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, God had something to say about that particular man that would injure a pregnant woman. Now, without going through all the features of that detail, so if a man, for whatever reason, injured a woman who was pregnant and the child died. So in other words, here's the death of a child yet unborn. Was there any punishment for the man? The Bible says yes. Now today, of course, we have so many who are quick to say, well, the baby hadn't been born, so it's okay. It's not a human being yet. God knew nothing about that. That baby that was killed in the womb, that man had to pay life for life. In other words, he could very well be punished very severely because of the death of that unborn child. But as you and I step forward to look at yet another verse, the one that follows it in Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 5, it is in that position, at that location, we again notice that God spoke concerning Isaiah. And He talked about the fact that here was a man who was a prophet, but yet it had been ordained so, and yet the value and greatness of it had even been known before he was born. Now that's impressive, isn't it? To think about a man whose effort, whose labor, whose life's work in the effort of prophecy had actually been ordained prior to his birth. And yet today we seemingly with such freedom have the legal character of taking life. In Jeremiah, 40, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, rather, verses 5 and following, a very similar statement also made about the great life's work of the prophet Jeremiah, even before he was born. I would use all of that to quickly come to the words of the psalmist. In Psalm 139, may I direct your attention? We'll simply read a couple of the verses out of that chapter, highlighting the sweet preciousness of an unborn child. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The psalmist commented that when I was in my mother's womb, all of my particular body parts hadn't been fully formed yet, but the psalmist said, you knew that they were there and that they were going to be formed. And that even at that time, you had in place a consideration of me and the kind of person I could become. May you and I always lift so highly the bountiful value attached to children. Maybe one final thought would be the wonderful actions of Jesus. Do you recall on occasion when He brought some children to Him, set them right in the midst of this group of people He was teaching, and said, unless you become like them, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. They have qualities, perhaps innocence, Perhaps sinlessness, 
perhaps that set of ideas characteristic of an interest in truth. And in that way, Jesus said, unless you become like them, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Needless to say, the Bible lifts so highly and so wonderfully the cherished preciousness of a child. But that particular idea quickly leads us to note several other descriptions. And we'll use these to close our opening slide. The thrilling description of Psalm 127, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the city, that is to say the watchman, unless he wakes in vain, unless the Lord watches over it, then the watchman wakes in vain. I wonder what he was talking about. Was that a description of a brick mason literally laying up a house? And unless God's watching over it, the house that's built will be rather vain and it'll be rather fruitless. Well, no, that isn't what he was talking about. Two verses later, he directly says, Children are in heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. He was giving us an inspired description of a, high, a home, if you please. A home where children are a home that appreciates and understands the blessings attached to them. And unless God watches over it, then of course it is not going to have all the characteristics it should. I would say that in light of all of those verses and others that quickly can be mentioned, the Bible asks us, begs us, to give thought to the cherished preciousness of children. And so you'll notice on that slide, they are a blessing from God. When you and I look into the eyes of a child, may we see in them and appreciate of them the tremendous gift that they are from God. In Genesis 4, verses 1 and following, may I ask, when Eve became pregnant, and she in fact brought into this world those children you and I would call Cain and Abel, who does the text says? made her conceive. God did. God did. A gift from God. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't a happenstance. It wasn't a thing whereby one could dissociate it from the blessing of God. In Genesis 17, 16, what about the birth of Isaac? It says God did it. He brought about that birth of Isaac, of course, to Abraham and Sarah. In Ruth 4, verses 13 and following, when Ruth became pregnant, she and Boaz, what does the text say about who caused it? The text says the Lord brought that about. Well, maybe that's enough to be said along that line, reminding us it was the will of God to make this beautiful thing take place, the birth of a child. Sure enough, in light of that birth, You'll notice near the bottom of that slide how precious they are. Proverbs 17, verse number 6, reminds us, and those of us that are grandparents certainly are mentioned in this verse, children indeed are lifted so highly as a marvelous gift from God. And it says that not only is that set of parents, but they are the glory of old men. In other words, those of us that are grandparents can still thrill at the thought of the joy coming in the birth of a grandchild. Needless to say, in all those things, children are born in innocence. 
they are not born in sin. I know what Calvinistic doctrine teaches. And John Calvin was fond, rather fond of saying, There are children in hell not a span long. The man was wrong. A child is born in purity, in innocence, without any sin. Ezekiel 28, 15. No wonder then in that light, sadly, the religious world has, has misunderstood many things about that. But today, you and I know far better, thankfully. And so, for the remainder of the time this morning, we know that as those children enter this world, they are dependent upon us. They can't care for themselves. They can't provide their own food, their own necessities otherwise in life. They depend solely and fully upon parents, upon others. And not only that, they enter this world not having a knowledge of the truth either. They enter into this world and they grow up. And as such, they are not born with this innate knowledge that will lead them to heaven. It has to be instilled within them. It has to be presented to them. And as you and I learn from various verses in the Word of God, our journey will begin in precisely some of these obligations. So with regard to a child entering the world, so what are some rather obvious ones? Let's build on that first point we made. Parents, other adults, are required, of course, to provide the necessary physical things for this child. I've listed in particular things such as food. We each know that we need to eat to live, and this child can't provide for itself. Needless to say, the Bible gives us some examples of this. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, that man that won't provide for his own. Now, Paul is talking about those physical provisions. The text says he's denied the faith, and he's worse than an infidel. If he won't provide for his own household, that surely would include children. Amazingly, you'll notice in 1 Kings 17, 3, there was a woman who she was down to her last element of oil and the last element of the necessary meal, and she was taking it to fix one final meal for her and her son. But she was going to take care of that child as long as she could. And we who are parents, we certainly feel the same. We would gladly go hungry in order for our children to eat. It wouldn't bother us at all if that came to us. But may I say, that would also include the other things, such as their necessary raiment and clothing. All of that leads us to the next point. The Bible also demands that we as parents not only give food and other things to them, but we provide for them an environment in which they can thrive and grow appropriately. Look at some of these verses. Luke 2 verse 52. This was a description of Jesus and His early days, and of course His parents were Joseph and Mary. What was said there about the Master? Though He was only age 12 at the time, it was nonetheless said of him, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was in an environment in which he could grow socially. He could learn to interact with people. He could grow physically. As he was provided the necessary nourishment, his physical stature grew appropriately. Not only that, it says he grew intellectually. 
we should also encourage that in our children to make sure that they have the necessary interactions whereby their mind is stimulated appropriately and they can grow in all the ways that would be the will of God. But of course, there's another one mentioned in the verse. Jesus also grew in favor with God. That certainly mustn't be overlooked. And in fact, it's going to be a central part of one of our observations in just a moment. As far as some biblical examples that highlight these things, I've asked for you to observe these. What about this environment? What would be some attributes, some characteristics of it? First, one thing that's critical is some element in discipline. Some understanding whereby, again, as a child is born into the world, he or she doesn't know everything, but rather they must be guided, directed, disciplined, and that is always such that it is done so in love. And furthermore, it is done so with an element of wisdom. And as you can see on the slide, matters in delight are a part of it. Now you might pause to ask, what delight is there in the punishing of a child? According to that verse, the delight is this. You know what the future is going to bring. Their behavior will be sufficiently molded now that they will become the good citizens, the good parents themselves, that their behavior will be such that they'll be a blessing to all that are around them. But the text also says, if I don't do that now, then they're going to grow up to have characteristic behaviors as poor as this one, and they're going to be a distress to their mate. They'll be a distress to others who know them. You and I as parents have a tremendous influence upon them and what they'll become. You'll notice one more thing about that. Several times in the Bible, there are those who did not do this. Let me ask a question. The text expressly says in 1 Kings 1.6, David did not discipline Adonijah his son. What kind of man did Adonijah grow up to be? A worthwhile person, a good citizen, a happy servant of God? Or was he himself a rather spoiled brat who basically, even as an adult, acted rather inappropriately? And it's the latter. Read 1 Kings, the first couple of chapters sometime, and notice the way he met his terrible death. Beyond that, could we at least call ourselves to note another example? We as parents, as far as providing an environment for our children, it must not be an environment that is constantly filled with discouragement, that's constantly filled with anger and wrath. Now, fathers, by and large, the Bible puts that obligation on us. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We, by and large, can set the tone for the overall character and thrust and behavior in our household. And we must not allow it to devolve into constant discouragement, constant devotion to that which is full of wrath. In fact, later on in Colossians 3, fathers were told almost the same thing again. Do not fill them with wrath and anger. Now, there are times of discipline, but that should be tempered with times of commendation, times of accomplishment, times of achievement. 
And the Bible, again, helps us appreciate that there's very much a proper environment. May we strive with diligence to make sure those things are a reality. One more thing on the bottom of that slide. Aren't you impressed at times with the failure of others in the Bible concerning this one? What about Isaac? You and I recall that Isaac again was married to Rachel, or rather Rebecca, and of course they had a couple of children. We remember Jacob and Esau. What did that family come to be? Now Jacob is the patriarch, it was his chore, or rather Isaac is the patriarch, his obligation to move that family in the correct direction, and yet we notice his wife was guilty of deception, so was his younger son. And by the way, didn't that lead to a lot of heartache? The proper environment appears not to have been as full as perhaps it should have. And another example would be that of Gilead, who again behaved in a very improper way in Judges chapter 11. And ultimately that came to have an impact on Jephthah. As that slide closes... Certainly, parents must love their children. The Bible, of course, teaches this on many occasions. In Titus 2, verse 4, mothers, they're commanded to love their children. And certainly, we as fathers recognize the teaching of 1 John 3, where we are thus in a position to think about how that God loves His children. And that passage asserts that in the same way, we should strive to love our own. Those kind of things have at least reminded us of some obligations, but may I say that the greatest one has not yet been listed. What is the prime obligation, the central obligation, the most critical one? Let's use this next slide. I've entitled it the ultimate one. The ultimate obligation of parents to their children. One by one, as we look at some of these verses, I would ask that we, in fact, reflect rather interestingly upon them. Let's start this way. Many people, no doubt, in our society today would think, if my child grows up to be healthy, to be a good citizen, and to have a good job, I think everything will be fine. I will have done my job as a parent. I will have, in fact, assisted or encouraged that child in every way that's meaningful, everything will be good. But the interesting thing is, the Bible doesn't share that viewpoint. I've listed there at the top, again, no doubt many things that could cross our mind. When that child enters the world, will this child be influential? Will this child be popular? Will this child be wealthy? Will this child be a good citizen? Will he or she be happy? I know that we want the best for our children. We really do want the best for them. But God says that best is going to involve this ultimate obligation. The lasting question is this one in Matthew, or rather Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. Jesus, speaking on that occasion, put it in words like this. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? To put that differently, what will I have gained if this child of mine is wealthy, is popular, maybe influential, has a good job, and yet they lose their soul in hell? 
have I come out any the better? Has it worked out for them in the way that would be best? Perhaps for obvious reasons. The central obligation that the Word of God refers to on many occasions is this one. It is their spiritual development. It is their knowledge of the truth. It is their understanding of it. Let's look one by one at several of these verses. Would you return with me to the book of Genesis, the opening chapter in the Bible? And let's note first chapter number 18, verse 19. Genesis 18, verse number 19. While you're turning to that passage, let me at least in passing mention perhaps one other one. Have you ever given thought to the life of Noah? The world was evil. People's thoughts had been turned to what was really improper. And yet in the midst of this generation, there was one man and his family recognized as faithful. One. His name was Noah. At this point, tell me about his children. Noah only had three sons. That's all he had. No daughters. And every one of them were aboard the ark. Doesn't that indicate Noah apparently... He and his wife had directed their children, asserting them in the proper way and leading them in the way of faithfulness and truth. As far as that second example, verse 19 of Genesis 18, God said something concerning Abraham. He said, "...seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him." For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. God said, I know something about Abraham. He will command his household and his children after me. Now surely we know that Abraham and Sarah did make that approach and God spoke very valiantly about him here. I know he's going to do this. Those children are not going to be left to try and figure it out on their own. He's going to command them. He's going to instill in them that appreciation and that direction toward truth. Thus, in the very first age of time, the patriarchal one, we have these wonderful examples. Why don't we turn over to the Mosaic period in time? Do we find something similar? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, here's uh, some statements made again by Moses to the children of Israel. He said, "...only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons." The children of Israel were specifically told, Fathers, hear me now. You, above all other things, lest those youngsters forget God, lest they grow up and do not understand and appreciate Him, you teach them. And not only that, your grandchildren. You also strive to teach them. Did you notice what was most immediately mentioned? He didn't say anything about make sure you teach them how to grow the best garden. Now, not to say that's a bad idea. You teach them how to be the best fishermen. Not to say that's a terrible idea. But above all other things, 
you make sure that their spiritual knowledge is raised to the level in which this verse would present it. Look also at the next one I've asked you to consider. Two chapters over, chapter 6, beginning in verse number 2. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Well, you'll notice again, Israel, make sure you teach those children. As they grow up, they're going to be motivated to pursue many things in life. Peer pressure and friends will turn their attention. They've got to be grounded. And you make sure that above all things else, they are centered in, founded upon, and anchored by the teaching of the Word of God. That's two ages in time. What about another one? As we come today to the Christian era, we mentioned this verse earlier in the study today, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and it's a very well-known passage. Verse number 4 reads as follows, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's a sense in which, of course, that verse has a connection to both fathers and mothers, but there's a direct assertion regarding the fathers. And he says, provoke not your children to wrath. We noted that earlier, proper environment. But he goes on to say, bring them up. What two things are a part of this upbringing? First, the nurture. To nurture means to provide the necessary ingredients for growth. When you and I put a plant in a pot and we nurture it, we have the right soil, some fertilize, water, the other necessary ingredients to make the thriving of that plant possible. We who, of course, guide the home, we have an opportunity to make the environment possible for which that child can thrive. But note the second one, and the admonition of the Lord. That word admonition comes from the word admonish. It includes many things, not the least of which are direct instruction, the example of life, the circumstances surrounding making this child come to appreciate and to love the matters concerning the things of God. Needless to say, there are some general instructions then in the Bible. In Joel 1 verse number 3, again back in the days of the Old Testament, as you fathers direct those children and the generations following, after the things of God is what Joel emphasizes. Psalm number 78 is our lesson text today. Christopher read that in our hearing earlier. I would invite you to listen again as we reflect on Psalm 78 in light of the lesson we're studying this morning. Let me begin reading in verse number 2. I will open my mouth at a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Might I pause and note this? The psalmist said, My dad told me this. You and I as fathers, may we again appreciate 
What are we telling our children? What kind of life are we living before them? Next verse. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. The psalmist said, God gave a commandment, and He commanded our fathers to teach these things to their children, and we've done it. But not only that. Verse 6 says, Who should arise and declare them to their children? Perhaps in light of all that, our slide races to close and leads us directly to one final slide this morning. As wonderful it is to make the physical provisions for our children, and we love to do that, may we not overlook the ultimate obligation to make sure they're directed along the pathway that will lead them to heaven, to make sure they travel that pathway because rest assured... The devil is going to make sure there's a lot of distracting forces and a lot of things to capture their attention. And if they aren't properly grounded and fundamentally so, they likely will choose one of those tangent paths. And so on this slide, if you and I are the ones that God has given this ultimate obligation to, to teach our children like this, there clearly are some immediate demands of us. I've listed three of them like this. Number one, we have to be convicted in the Word of God. We can say it all day long, but the child can see through us just as well as he can see through a ladder. He knows whether our life really is convicted in the Bible or not. He knows whether we're just talking the talk or whether we really are also walking the walk with it. Child, children are not very impressed with hypocrisy. If dad and mom live one way, but then on Sunday tell me something else, it's likely not going to turn out well. Their life is typically going to follow what the real life of dad and mom is. Well, so in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. First of all, our children will know immediately if we're only play acting or not. But secondly, if we're going to teach it to them, we have to know it ourselves. You can't teach what you don't know. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? And we know that in every other realm in life. For that reason, you know, our school system, they hire qualified people. That's the idea. A person with a degree, a person with experience. Well, so too as parents. We should, by the time we have children, be experienced in this book. We should have a number of years of living it faithfully, or at least a commitment to the things that it says. You'll notice verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And finally, to perhaps put those two together, 
those children certainly would easily recognize if our life is not genuine. It seems to me rather impressive that Paul had these words to say about Timothy's mother and his grandmother. They possessed an unfeigned faith. Now, perhaps that word unfeigned is not often used in our English language, but the word is, is simply genuine. Mom and grandma possessed a genuine faith. They truly lived the Word of God. They meant it. Is it any wonder then when Paul came through that region in Acts 16, Timothy had been reared in such a way that when he heard the truth, he was given to follow it. So much so, he became a companion of Paul on the second missionary journey. What a lovely record and what a powerful emphasis to you and me today. The chief obligation, and let's summarize our lesson and close it like this. Oh, how precious, how valuable children are. We love them. We understand in them is such innocence, such potential. Needless to say, we desire to provide for them the physical things in life. But as we do that, the ultimate obligation surrounds their spiritual growth and making sure that that is what's encouraged. May we as parents and as grandparents and even great-grandparents, as we've seen in these verses today, feel in ourselves the lovely opportunity to contribute to that kind of development. Today, as you and I think about ourselves, may we be faithful unto God. If you aren't faithful today, you can make that right. You don't have to stay in a position of unfaithfulness. You could, in fact, let it be known to this group of people, and we'd be honored to pray upon your rededication and upon your confession and repentance. That could be taken care of in a matter of moments. And you could leave this building renewed, reinvigorated, and revitalized to a faithful walking with God. If you never become a Christian, no better day than this one. You need to believe in Jesus. Be convicted about Him, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. Confess His matchless name as the Son of God and be baptized. And today, if we could help you, it'd be our desire and our joy to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.